Okay, good morning. The peace of the Lord be with you. Why, thank you. It is good to see you. My name is Andrew. If this is your first time with us, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you in our house this morning. Uh, if you are new or newer to our community, we do have a little gathering coming up this Wednesday night called New Life Next, uh, which is an opportunity for you to hear more about who we are, what we're about, kind of our theology, our values, how we live out the faith together. And uh, it's also a chance for you to ask whatever questions you might have about our community. So we hold that gathering at New Life North. It's from 6.30 to 8 o'clock this Wednesday night. And we serve you a little bit of dinner. It's really a nice time. And the way that I structured it actually is we put the content together to really be a night where we discern together, like what does it actually mean to be part of the church? Not just this church, but the church in general. I think that we're living in a time when uh, church has become so consumeristic and individualistic that we've sort of lost the biblical and historical sense of what it means to be part of God's people. So this is really a night of rediscovering that uh, together. So if that's you, if you're newer, newer to our community, or it might also be that you've been part of our community for a long time, but you've just kind of, you're standing on the outskirts a little bit. This is an opportunity for you to take a step closer and uh, really become part of what God's doing here at New Life East. So uh, the little QR code that was on the screen before you can use that, there should be a link there and you can sign up uh, for New Life Next. So uh, we're in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles there. I'll be in chapter 5. And as we have seen the last bunch of weeks, uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Actually, 1 Timothy is part of a collection of letters called the Pastoral Epistles. And these are letters that Paul is writing to Timothy, who's one of his protégés, and also Titus, the book of Titus. And these guys are young pastors. And so Paul is speaking to them, trying to help them remember just what their duties are as a pastor. But it's not really for them. He's doing that for them so that they can pass that on to the people of God and help the people of God remember just what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, I'm giving you these instructions, Timothy, so that if I'm delayed from visiting you, God's people will know how they should conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Isn't that fascinating? And Paul actually thinks that the common life of the church together, that is the pil pillar and foundation of the truth. It's actually like the bulwark of God's revelation in society so that the more we live true to who we've called to be as God's people, the clearer God's will for human life goes out into the world. Pretty remarkable thing. So what he's been touching on all through 1 Timothy is really lots of practical matters, matters of doctrine, matters of practice, what happens when we gather together for church, how church should be led. He talks about elders and deacons. He talks some about some false teaching that's going on that's got the people a little bit confused. And so he says, you know, there are folks out there that are diminishing marriage and saying that you shouldn't eat certain foods. He says, but that's actually in a way, that's like a denial of the incarnation. So he's getting them clear on what they're supposed to be about. And then we come to this chapter, chapter five, which is another one of those funny chapters in First Timothy where you're like, now, how is this really about us? It's a chapter where he deals with a specific problem that's happening in the Ephesian church. And that is that there's a lot of widows in the church. And so he's giving some commands about how do you handle all of the, the sheer abundance of these widows in the church. And I think as we meditate on this, what we're going to see is that in a lot of ways, this text is actually a window into how does Paul think, like what does Paul think the church is supposed to be in the first place? And then also, what does he think faith, like how does he see faith mattering 
for our sense of connection to our biological families. And there's some really deep insights here that I want you to catch. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you have Bibles and you're there, why don't you let me know by saying I'm there. It's Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul writes, Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat the younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, well, these should first of all learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and their grandparents. For this is what? It's pleasing to God. I want you to remember that. The widow who is really in need and left all alone, well, she puts her hope in God and she continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. And anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 16. Now some instructions about this. Faithful to her husband, well known for good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So here we are in your presence, oh Jesus. This letter was written to a long time, it was written a long time ago by two people we've never met into a situation that's so far removed from us. And yet, and yet, the scripture says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We pray that somehow these 10 verses of scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 5 would be for us exactly what we need to hear, to put us on the path of faithfulness, to restore our lives and make them whole, and to cause our witness to shine in the world more brightly, to be clearer to the world. That's what we're asking for. So come, I'm praying that you would enable us to hear. I'm praying that you would give us strength in our hearts to obey. I'm praying as the preacher that you give me clear words to speak this morning and that in all of this, a Pentecost would happen, that the word of God would be delivered, the wonders of God would be declared in each person's tongue and that they'd be cut to the heart, that there'd be repentance and salvation. Please do that this morning. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said... And so Paul starts out by talking right out of the gate here about the kinds of relationships we should have in the church. And he says, so suppose there's an older man in the church that's misbehaving. If you have to rebuke him, he says, don't rebuke him harshly, but you need to exhort him as if he were your, do you remember what the text said? So how do you behave towards the older men in the church? You behave towards them as though they're like your dad. So faith already is like doing something very interesting. And then he says, now while I'm at it, While I'm talking to you, Timothy, about how you should behave to the older men, let me talk to you about how you should behave to the younger men. They're not just sort of guys that are useful for whatever's happening in the church, but how does he say you should behave towards the younger men? Treat them as brothers. And he says, now, while I'm at it, Timothy, also let's talk about the older women for a second. How are you going to treat the older women? It's not rhetorical. You remember? Treat them like moms. And then how are you going to treat the younger women? Like sisters. Yeah, like, so, and we said it in the first week of this series, if you were here. Paul actually calls, he opens this letter, he talks, he calls Timothy his dear son in the faith. And the point that I made that first week 
is that faith makes family. And as this letter unfolds, you keep seeing this, that sense of social solidarity that happens in the church is so really very unique. And I think when I look at the scriptures, the way that I describe what happens in the church is that to me, the church is just a social miracle. Think about what Paul says in Galatians. He says in the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's not male or female. Somehow all of the barriers have been broken down and we've come together in this space of really profound solidarity one with another. And you see this from the very beginning of the church. This is Acts chapter two. Uh, the uh, the uh, script, the, I'm losing my words here. Help him, Jesus. The writer Luke, who was one of Paul's best friends, says this in Acts chapter two and verse 42. Spirit's been poured out, the church is born. And he says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but not just to the teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer and everybody was filled with awe at all of these signs and wonders that were performed by the apostles and all I love this here's the verse to catch all the believers were what together and more than together they had everything in common I love that they sold property and possessions to give to anybody in the church as they had need every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, these people, it's this mob of folks, guys, that the Spirit is poured out upon. And just think about it. The first impact of the Spirit of God upon this group of people, once they come together, is that they look at one another and they go, oh, you belong to me and I belong to you. And so they sell property and possessions to give to anybody as they had need. And it actually says this is so radical. It says all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Something about what the Spirit did made them go, here it all is. Let's be a family together. And the church behaved this way. Several chapters later in the book of Acts, one of the things that we see is that this issue of widowhood, it's actually just a feature of the ancient world. It was younger women tended uh, to be you know, given in marriage to older men in the ancient world, which is a nice situation financially. He's got stability and security, but also it's the ancient world and life was precarious and living, you know, life expectancy was not as long. And so a lot of these guys are going to die off pretty early, leaving these women to fend for themselves. And so there are lots of women in the ancient world. And one of the things you see in Acts chapter six, just a few chapters later, is that the church, I mean, here is this profound movement born of the spirit, just rolling along and sweeping up people in its wake. And yet all of a sudden they realize that in the church, some of the widows in the church were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And what I love about the commentary in Acts chapter six is that the apostles, when they realized that these vulnerable women were being overlooked, they went, oh, time out. Like we can't just keep running along in the mission of God, trying to save souls and expand the church when this is happening. And so they put their heads together and they go, how do we make sure that these women are taken care of? That, guys, is the ethos of the church. It's this tenderness where we feel a sense of obligation to one another and we take care of one another. I actually think that that's even rooted just in the witness of Jesus himself. One of the moments of such a profound moment in the life of Jesus is that here he is at the end of his life hanging on the cross. And one of the things that we remember in the church is the seven last words of Jesus. Things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they were doing. That's one of the last words. Into your hands, I commit my spirit is another last word of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's another last word of Jesus. But you know what one of the last words of Jesus is? He's hanging there on the cross. 
he looks down and he sees his mom and he's not going to be able to take care of his mom anymore. And he sees one of his best friends, the beloved disciple, John. And what does he say? He says, mom, here's your boy. And John, take care of my mama. Puts them together. That's what Jesus does. He puts us together in family. He goes, woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mom. Man, here's your father. Father, here's a son for you. Man, here's a brother for you and a brother for you. Brothers and sisters, he puts us together in the family of God. It's such a profound thing. That's what Paul is doing here. He's reminding us that everybody in the church is our responsibility on some level. That if you come into the family of God, he actually says that in Romans. He says, y'all are members of the body of Christ. He says, and each one of you, you belong to all of the others. So I don't get to come into the church and just be like, well, I've got my people. Like, you're my people, you're my people, you're my people. I don't know about all these other people. But the moment you come into church, you go, all y'all are all my people. And I don't quite know what all my responsibility and obligation is to you. I just know that I have one. And I'm going to trust the Spirit to lead me into that. So I'd say it this way to you this morning, just to put a fine point on it. That Paul reminds us that our central task, one of the central tasks of discipleship, it's learning to order our lives to the social miracle that is the church. That discipleship, you know, when I was growing up in the church, discipleship was so much about, you know, read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's really what discipleship is. And we had a song that went along with it. You could probably sing it with me. But I think when you actually read your Bible and pray every day over it, the thing that you realize is that discipleship is a lot bigger than just personal piety. But discipleship is about recognizing this thing that's happening around us and then going, Lord, what are you calling me to be? And it's so much joy in the church. There's so much joy when you give yourself over to it. I think about Mandy came home a couple Saturdays ago. She had been in a baby shower. And so she walked in at about two in the afternoon or so. She'd been there all morning and into the early afternoon. And I said, babe, how did the shower go? How was it? She goes, it was great. It was so much fun. And I said, who was there? And she started listing off all of the women that were there. And they were all New Life East women. <laughs> and it just made me smile so big, like I marveled again at the miracle. And I've said this so many times, but I've never stopped being astonished at it. Three years ago, none of us really knew each other. And now here we are together in this space where the Spirit every Sunday is moving upon us. And what it's doing, like the spill out of it, is that when a woman in our congregation is about to bring a baby into the world, she's got a sisterhood around her who are loving her and supporting her and celebrating her and going, whatever you need, you know, we're here for you. That, I don't know if you're moved by that. I'm so moved by that. I just think it's so staggeringly beautiful in a world that is as lonely and divided and separated as ours is, that that still happens, that's, Guys, that's, that's shocking to me. But that's the work of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. Or I think about just this past Wednesday night, several of us, I, I love the New Life East staff. They are wonderful people. And it's been such a joy. You work together for Jesus. And uh, if you're lucky, I think what happens is you're working for Jesus. All of a sudden you'll, you'll go, oh my gosh, like you people are amazing people. And I've just fallen in love with this, with this staff. And we got together this past Wednesday night for a meal. We do it pretty frequently. And we're sitting around the table together and we broke into this time of blessing of one another. It was actually Rory took the lead on it. Let's just speak some words of blessing over everybody at the table. And so you know what we did for an hour and a half? 
is that every person at the table spoke blessing over every other person at the table. And then we were done speaking blessing over the one person we get together and we would pray blessing over them. And every single person at that table wept multiple times. (laughs) And again, three years ago, we don't know each other. But somehow the spirit was poured out upon us and the call of Jesus came to us and it broke down those barriers between us. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for any one of those people and their families that are sitting at that table. Why does that happen? It happens because we allow the spirit of God to do it. He creates family. It's a social miracle. And discipleship is learning how to live up to that. Or I think about several weeks ago, we were finishing up, we were finishing up our volunteer huddle Sunday morning right before church started. And I was getting ready to walk out there to the front doors, which I always do to welcome people in at first service. And little Banner Stoddard, he's the younger Stoddard, youngest Stoddard kid. Have you ever seen this kid? He's the cutest kid that God made. Apologies to your children and grandchildren, but I think if you saw his face, you'd agree. He's just so cute. And I love this kid so much. And I'm wandering out into the lobby to head, you know, make my way to the front door. Little Banner Stoddard is there. And he's just looking as cute as can be. And I look down at him and I go, Banner! Good morning. You're looking good this morning. And you know what he did? Put his arms up. I grabbed Banner Stoddard, pick him up, pull him close. I said, Banner, I love you. And I gave him a kiss on the cheek and he said, I love you too. The church. That'd be weird if that happened out there in the world. (laughs) Stay away from my kid. Stranger danger. (laughs) But in the church, it's like, hi, welcome to your family. Banner is like, he's like one of my own kids. And that's because the spirit did that. There's so much joy in it. The psalmist said, how good and pleasant it is. Psalm 133, when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. He said, it's like precious oil poured on the head running down on the beard. That oil in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is a symbol of the Spirit's presence and power. So he says it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, down on Aaron's beard. Aaron was one of the priests of the Old Testament, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew, which renews the ground, the dew of Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. And then the psalmist says, there the Lord bestows his, do you know it? Anybody know it? Blessing. There, where? In that place of unity, in that place of connection with one another. There the Lord bestows his, say it church, blessing, even life forevermore. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann once said that that Hebrew word for blessing, do you know what it means? It means God's power for life that's released into death that overcomes death with life. So blessing for us is like, oh, blessing, isn't that so nice? But blessing in the biblical imagination, it's resurrection power actually is what it is. He says, you want resurrection power to break into your life, to break into the life of the world? Dwell together in unity. Live up to your call to be part of the church. Again, there's so much joy in it. And I think that when we open ourselves up to the joy of it, what also happens is we open ourselves up to the obligations that come to us in it. And in those obligations also is a kind of joy that it's a transcendent joy. I'm sitting here preaching this morning. I'm looking over at Megan, Megan Cagle here and I, I was recalling this week as I was preparing this message, I was recalling how five and a half years ago when I first came on staff here, my first day on the job, I was unpacking my boxes in my office at New Life North. And when I first came on staff here, my staff assignment was to the Friday night congregation, served as a teaching pastor there alongside 
one of my best friends of all time, Pastor Daniel Grothy, and also one of the best pastors I have ever known and probably will ever know in my life. Amen to that. And I'm unpacking my boxes and I'm getting set up and I, I got a call from Daniel uh, and he's checking in on me. Hey, how's it going, man? I said, good. I said, I'm unpacking my boxes, getting my office set up. What you up to? And he said, well, I'm heading to the hospital. I said, oh, what, what, for what? And he said, well, there's a guy in our congregation, a couple, Kevin and Megan Cagle. And Kevin is, they've been part of our congregation forever. Kevin serves on life safety, pilot with Southwest, good guy. He's been wrestling with cancer for the last year or so. And it looks like he's losing the battle. And I'm going up to the hospital, St. Francis over here to visit him. And I said, man, can I join you? And he said, oh, I'd love that. So I jumped in the Jeep and I met him over at St. Francis. And we went up and we were there. And Kevin's struggling, fighting for his life. And I watched, I watched Daniel crawl right up. I mean, just get right in there and pray and speak words of life. And I'm kind of standing there. I don't really know you guys. You know, I'm standing at the edge of the room trying to be supportive, but I'm watching, um, I'm watching Daniel treat the Kegels like they were his own flesh and blood. And we prayed over them and left. And two mornings later, Saturday morning, I got a call from Daniel. Hey, it looks like Kevin now is in his last hours. If you're available, let's go up to the house together. And so we went up to the house together in Monument. And there's a small group of friends and family in the bedroom. And I watched again. It's so shocking. I watched Daniel just get like right in there crawl up on the bed and hold Kevin in his arms like he was his own dad. And Daniel's on the bed with him going, Kevin, you have lived a good life and you're a good man and you have set your family up for success and there is nothing more that you need to do here. And then he said this, he said, Kevin, I also want you to know that we're going to take good care of your wife and we're going to take good care of Anna and we're going to take good care of Austin, your kids. You don't have anything to worry about. And if you're ready to let it go, let it go, buddy. We've got you. And Kevin passed away within an hour. It's like he just needed that last little affirmation, that sort of blessing. And here's Megan five and a half years ago sitting with us, and she's been loved. Why? Because in the church, what you do is you treat the older men as fathers and the younger women as sisters and the Younger men as brothers, mothers, fathers. This is what we do, is we live up to it. And I'm, I say all of that, I guess, just to say, when I think about, actually, I need you to know this. When I think about how I organize and how I lead as a pastor here, I think that that stuff, I think that is the call of the church. And I think that stuff is the most beautiful stuff that can happen in the church. And so all of my efforts as a pastor, they're aimed at trying to create situations where that can happen. Like we have this moment, for instance, in the service when we get together on Sundays, when the worship leader or the service host will say, blah, 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 blah. Now, turn and greet somebody next to you. Do you know why we say that? We don't say that because we're trying to release a little positive social energy into the room because it'll make the preaching easier. We say that so that you can run into people and experience the joy just for a moment of being in the family of God. And then in that joy, begin to sense the obligation to one another that's wrapped up in the joy so that the church can actually take care of itself as the family of God, as the body of Christ. Why, why do we do the fellowship hour in between the services with the coffee and the donuts and all of that? Is it because we're trying to keep Safeway in business? We're doing it because the kingdom breaks out in those places. 
And I've heard it over and over and over again that people came in here carrying heavy burdens or things in their life that were spinning out of control or great and heavy needs. And they got in a conversation with somebody over there in fellowship hour. And one conversation led to another conversation, led to another conversation. And all of a sudden the saints have rallied to take care of those. But why do we do the table groups in the week, during the week? Is that because it's just kind of, you know, nobody really has, you know, people have just have kind of open, empty schedules and uh, idle hands or the idle mind is the devil's playground or whatever it is. So we got to keep them busy. Is that why? We're doing it because the work of the Spirit in the world is to bring people together and to cause them to be the family of God and the body of Christ. And our discipleship is incomplete if it stops with just me and Jesus. We got a real great thing going on, but I don't really care about anybody else. You can't do that. (laughs) It doesn't work. With the creed that we said earlier, we confess one God, the Father, the Almighty. We confess one Lord Jesus Christ. We confess the Holy Spirit. And then what else do we confess that we say that we believe in? The church. And by the way, the church is in the stanza dealing with the Holy Spirit. It's the creed's way of saying that when the triune God does what the triune God does in the world, when the Spirit has the Spirit's impact in the world, what is that? It's the church. It's us. And so Paul reminds us here in this text that it doesn't matter what the need is. In the first century in Ephesus, it's widows. All the needs are different here in the 21st century. But part of our discipleship is learning to live up to our obligation to this social miracle that is the church. We care for one another. We support one another. We're there for one another. That's what we do. Can I get an amen from somebody? But it's not only that, because he draws our attention to something else That's true, I think, of the life of faith. I want you to look down again at verse 4 of chapter 5. Watch this. Paul talking about, okay, now you all need to make sure that you're taking care of the widows and all of that. And then he says this, verse 4. He says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, that is in the church, these should first of all learn to put their religion into practice. How? By caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and their grandparents. For this is, what does the text say? It's pleasing to God. That when we live up to our obligation to our biological families, that's pleasing to God. That God takes delight. God smiles upon that. And if that's true, then the converse is also true. Look down at verse 8. Anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has what? Denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever if you forsake your obligation to your biological family. Now, I'm just going to say that I know that this is complicated and I'm going to get around to that, okay? But we've got to just like accept this for a second. We'll say it this way. That Paul reminds us that our obligations to our biological families, it's not just incidental. It's not just kind of an annoyance that you have. Oh my gosh, my mom, my dad, my kids. He doesn't want us to think about our families in this way. He reminds us that our obligations to our biological families, they are what? They're sacred. He says that when you render what's due to your families, it's actually pleasing to God. It delights the heart of God. God draws near to you in you rendering your obligation, what's due to your biological families. And I am astonished by so many things in the New Testament. But one of the things that consistently blows me away is how when you read the letters of Paul, for instance... 
Paul will go into great detail, elaborate theological detail about all that God has accomplished for us in Christ. Paint the sky with brilliant colors of God's work. He is, Paul will say, for instance, in Colossians, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things are made, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and so through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven or things on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It stirs the soul. That somehow God in the man Jesus of Nazareth has saved and is saving the world. And we read these letters of Paul and we feel our, our pulse quicken and the blood race through our veins and we want to run out into the world. We're going to be part of this somehow. But then you ask the apostle Paul, how do we implement God's salvation into the world? What does it look like for us to run with all that God has accomplished for us in Christ? And when Paul finishes painting in elaborate detail the work of God in Christ, and he turns in his letters to moments of exhortation, now here's what you're going to do about it. Do you know what astonishes me about Paul's letters? Is that he doesn't say, hey, so what you're going to do is we're going to get together a big, uh, uh, a big like, mob of people and we're going to run into the streets telling everybody about Jesus. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, what we need to do is get the revolution underway. We got to organize. We got to get information out there. We got to mobilize. You know, we got to start a social media campaign. We got to get it all going. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say what you need to do is you need to get a little stand and stand up in the middle of the streets and you need to tell everybody about how the end of the world is coming and they got to get ready for it. He doesn't say that. You know what he does in his letters? Consistently. He says, so here's what you're going to do about it. Dads. Love your kids. Take care of your kids. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Moms, I want you to give your life to your families. Love them, care for them, honor them. Children, here's what you're going to do. Obey your parents in the Lord because it's right. Honor them. This is the first commandment, by the way, Paul says with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Wives, bless and build up your... What does he do? He turns our attention to our biological families. And he says, here's the first wave of your following Jesus. You're going to do it in your home. You're going to do it with the people who share your own flesh and blood. And we are living... It's so countercultural. It's so countercultural. Because we're living in a cultural moment now... When, so we've talked about this, that in the first century, there was this heresy floating around called Gnosticism. And people kind of believed that their biology and their history and the stuff of their lives didn't really matter all that much. That the truth actually lay kind of in this deep immaterial place within. And if they could connect with that deep immaterial place within and connect with kind of the truth without somewhere out there, then they could achieve salvation. They could achieve, in our modern parlance, we would say self-actualization. And we actually are repeating that same heresy now in the 21st century. That we go, you know, the true self, it lies in here. My true self doesn't have anything to do with my biology. It doesn't have anything to do with my mom and my dad. It doesn't have anything to do with my brothers and my sisters or where I grew up. It has nothing to do with that because it's all, all in here. And so as soon as I come to a kind of grasp of who I am in here, 
then my responsibility is to just set my life up in such a way and my associations up in such a way that I can achieve self-actualization. So if my mom is inconvenient to me, my aging mother, she's inconvenient to me in my path of self-actualization, well, all the worse for her. Or if my aging father is not really helpful to me and my quest to become myself in the world, well, tough cookies, dad. Or if my husband or my wife is preventing me from becoming my best self, then maybe I shouldn't. Or maybe my kids, it's just like, you know, I wanted a family a long time ago, but now I got these three or four kids and it's really standing in the way of me and my career. So maybe it's time for me to kind of shift my energies and somebody else will take it. What does Paul say when you do that? If you do that as a member of the body of Christ, he says that you're worse than an infidel, you're worse than an unbeliever. And unfortunately, guys, there are very many people in the church who do this and they do it in the name of God. Oh, well, this is the family of God right here. This is actually my true family now. So I don't really have any ongoing obligation to you, mom. I don't have any obligation to you, dad. I don't have obligation to you, brothers and sisters, grandma and grandpa, uh, because these are my new people here. And I think that that's wrong. I think it's wrong to the core. Because I think that what happens, this is what I think happens in the family of God, is that we come into an experience of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Spirit inside the community of faith and the family of faith. And what that does is it actually sends us back into our families of origin so that we can be a transformative influence. It doesn't sever our relationship with them, but it saves our relationship with them so that we can be all that we've been called to be for. And we know how to keep our footing. And I know that it's difficult. Some of y'all, most of your families are not believers. Some of you guys have been wounded terribly by your families. You've been wounded by your mom. You've been wounded by your dad. Your your relationships with people and your families of origin, they were abusive in some way. I get it. I get it. But part of what the saving work of God does is it saves us so that we can be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. That we're able to be in our families of origin in a way that's right and holy and righteous and transformative. And let me say this to you. I remember years ago when I was in seminary reading the biography, autobiography of Billy Graham, one of the greatest evangelists the church has ever seen, responsible for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people coming into the faith. And Billy Graham in this autobiography recounted his journey and his calling and how that all unfolded. And at the end of the book, do you know what he said? He said, I've walked with Jesus and I have very few regrets, but the one regret that I have in my life is that I did not spend more time with my children some of the hardships that they went through were a direct result of me chasing a dream or chasing a sense of calling out there and not being willing to just sit and have a quiet evening with my people. And I have been a pastor now for going on 20 years and I have officiated or been in dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals. And do you know what I never hear people say at funerals? I never hear them say, man, dad was awesome. He worked like a hundred hours a week for as long as I knew him. Dude crushed it. They never say that. They never say, my mom, you know, she wrote books and she spoke in conferences and she was popular and well-loved. They don't say that. If they praise their parents, you know what they praise them for? Dad was there. Mom was there. Or if it's a sibling, he was there. He spent time with me. He was with me. He was for me. 
all of the warmth of our lives comes in relationships. And when God saves us into his family, he saves us also for our families. And like I said, I know it's challenging and I know it's hard, but part of the discerning work of the spirit is that we hold our biological families up before the Lord and we go, God, what are you asking me to do? How are you asking me to be? And it might be that you have to carry your cross into your family. Well, welcome to it. Nobody graduates from this. This is what discipleship is. It's carrying our cross with Jesus into the heart of the world. And so church, would you stand this morning? And we're going to do something before we come to the table of the Lord. We're going to pray over our families this morning. And I want you to do this. Uh, And honey, why don't you come up with me? If you're standing next to, if you're standing next to somebody who's in your family, you're standing next to your husband or your wife or your kids, mom or dad, you just put your arms around them right now. Get real close, get in each other's space. And it might be that you're not, and that's okay too. What I want you to do is I want you to hold your family and your heart before the Lord. I want you to call up their faces, the images of them. I want you to call up your relationships with them. And I want you just to begin to right now extend blessing towards them. Families in the room, I want you to begin to bless and pray over each other. Release blessing towards one another. Release the life of God. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And so I want you to speak unity into your household right now. And I want you, if you're here by yourself, begin to speak God's healing power into your family. And you know the places of brokenness in your family. You know the places of alienation and estrangement and hurt. You know how to speak life into it. So do it now. And so Jesus, we do that now. We're speaking the blessing of God over our families, over husbands and wives. Jesus, you said the reason that marriages fail is because of hardness of heart. So we bind and we rebuke hardness of heart. We call it cursed. We say that it has no place in this house. It has no place in our families. I'm speaking tenderness back into husbands and wives. I'm praying that they would see each other with the eyes that they saw each other with when they first fell in love. And I pray that you would give them new eyes to see each other for who they are right now and to love each other in that space. Do it, God. We pray for parents and children. You said, oh God, that one of the marks of the kingdom of God was that the hearts of the parents would be turned to the kids and the kids to the parents. Would you do that? Would you, would you put holy laughter into our families? Would you give us times of levity? For those of us who have teenagers, would you create clear channels of communication? Would you help us see each other and speak rightly to one another? Would you help us speak the truth, speak blessing to each other, turn brothers and sisters towards each other? And we also speak over all of the places of hurt and breakdown and bitterness and unforgiveness, not just in this room, but beyond this room, spread out all over the country, all over the world. We say, let it start with us. We pray that the radiant power of the Spirit from us would seep into our families and that you would subvert the enemy's every strategy for evil with the power of the kingdom of God. Come with your kingdom. Come with your power. Come with your justice. We pray that you'd move on the hearts of those that we're connected with that need to repent and haven't. We pray that they would own their stuff. We pray that the blessing of tears would fall upon them as they humble themselves and say they're sorry Would you do it? Would you help us bear witness to the kingdom? Come, oh God, we pray.